Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Open your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 6 and 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Acts chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, in a Bible study that I've creatively titled, Who is the Person God Uses? Part 2. This is a continuation of our time last time as we're asking and answering the question, what kind of person does God use? Or you could say, who is the man God uses? Who is the woman that God uses? And at times when we seek to answer this question, sometimes we get it wrong. I mean, we begin to look at our own limitations. We begin to look at our own weaknesses. And we measure up where we are and say, you know what? God can use everyone but me. You look and you go, well, you know, I'm untrained. God couldn't use me. Or, or I'm uneducated. God couldn't use me. Or I don't know much about the Bible. Or I haven't been walking with the Lord very long. Or a whole series of excuses and reasons that we come up with why God could certainly use others, but not us. But Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians in chapter 1, he reminds them that God uses anyone that will turn their hearts toward him. Any born-again believer is usable in the hands of God. The moment that you were born again is the moment you were enlisted in servanthood. You were invited into relationship, and you were also invited into servanthood. He says, you guys know your calling, and this is a paraphrase. You know your calling. Not many wise, not many noble. And he starts giving this, but what? God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And introductions abound of the foolish ones among us that God has chosen to use. Oh, some of you are very well educated. God wants to use you too. Some of you are very well trained. Yes, God wants to use you too. But in the right order. It's God first. It's his wisdom and his knowledge. And one of the problems that we have in our culture today is we live in a hyped up, status-oriented society. Globally. And it's in this hype and status-saturated world that the church world that media giants, book publishers, they've created a new category of Christian. Unfortunately, many people have bought into it, but it's simply a category that doesn't exist biblically. It was created in the world. It's kind of part of the world system. But they've created a new category to help them promote and create brands and sell things, and it's this category, Christian celebrity. Have you heard that phrase? Christian celebrity. If you look up the word celebrity in the dictionary, it literally means someone who's famous, someone who's famous, or a famous person. And let me just say emphatically today, church, there is only one famous man in the church of Jesus Christ. It's not you, and it's not me. The only famous one is Jesus. This is his church, what he's building. There are no Christian celebrities. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't, those two words don't go together. The singular focus of his church is the risen Lord Jesus Christ. 
And it doesn't matter if your church has five members or five million members. It's not your church. It's not my church. And I know we use that language from time to time. We use it in a very generic way, inviting someone. Maybe we say, hey, come to our church. Come to my church. And that would be an accurate use of those words. But if we ever use those words as if we own the church, as if the church is all about us, or that's our church and not your church, then we've fallen into the trap of identifying the church of Jesus Christ as being filled with celebrities, as being filled with people that seem to be more important than others. There's no one more important than others in the church of Jesus Christ. We're all equal, created in the image of God. There's nobody more important. We learn that in 1 Corinthians later on when when Paul's talking about the spiritual gifts. Certainly some people get more attention or some people have, you know, I, I have the gift that God uses my mouth so I get a little more attention than you, but I'm no more important than you. You can be sure of that. I'm giving, I'm using the gifts that God has given to me to be faithful to him and in the same way God wants you to use the gifts given to you to be faithful to him. And together, we're the body of Christ, seen and unseen. Even the Bible would say seemingly important, seemingly unimportant. No, we're all important to the Lord. But God is looking for servants, not celebrities. And forgive us, God, for helping to create that culture where men and women have followed Christian celebrities and made them celebrities. We should be repenting of that sin. There is no man more important than Jesus Christ. There's no man that should be put or woman be put on a pedestal as the only source of information and guidance. And Now look, God will use people in your life. Yes. You will relate to some pastors and teachers more than others. Yes. There will be people in your life where you just have a great appreciation of how God used them. Just make sure that the emphasis is right. We don't worship the tools. We worship the God whose hand the tool is in. It's not the tools. Even though we can express appreciation, I think the pendulum swings sometimes too far where we don't express appreciation and, and we don't encourage one another. No, we just need to be careful. There's no such thing as a Christian celebrity. Now, in the first century, if anyone could have been considered a Christian celebrity, I think it would be Paul the Apostle. Now, I want you to understand how Paul handled that. Turn over to 1 Corinthians now, chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul was used greatly by God. I mean, probably one of the most used men in all of Christian history. He also had that dramatic testimony. He he had a a, a background and a conversion story that was super popular, super dramatic, and used to write most of the Bible. He planted churches, missionary. I mean, God used this guy huge. Notice what he says about himself, though. He says, let a man so consider us as, say it with me, as servants of Christ. He doesn't say, consider me a professional. Consider me the example of Christian celebrity. Consider me the example of Christian, any of the things that we might say. He says, you know what? When you think of me, I just want you to know we're servants. Don't think about what I've done. Don't think about what I'm doing. Paul would often say, just pray for me and think of me as a servant. I'm a servant of Christ, and the second word he said is steward. Think of me as servants and stewards of the mystery of God. 
Now, a steward is someone who managed everything for his master, but owned nothing. Think about that. A steward owned nothing, but had responsibility over everything. Isn't that a great description of your life? You own nothing, but you're responsible for everything under your care. You go, wait, 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 wait a minute, Ed. I own nothing? What are you talking about? I paid off my house. I paid off my car, and I just bought this. What do you mean I own nothing? Oh, well, let's talk about that for a second. So, so here you are. You, you, you own, you've worked hard to buy all these things. Yes, I have. I've worked very, very hard. And so it's all you. You own everything. I do own everything. No, no, that's not what the Bible says. Because, you know, you worked hard. Who gave you the strength to work so hard? Well, you know, I've got my education. Who gave you the smarts to get your education? Well, you know, I was able to pay it off in cash. Who gave you the cash? It was the Lord. You don't own anything. Nothing. It all belongs to the Lord. Therefore, whatever you have, you need to be a good steward of. You need to honor God with your possessions, wherever you have. It all belongs to him. You will take nothing with you into eternity. Did you know that? (laughs) Nothing. It's all going to stay behind. And so therefore, we need to be good servants. You're looking for a pathway in your Christian walk. Seek to be a doulos, a servant. We've done studies on that before. And also seek to be a steward. And then notice he imposes the the reality of stewardship upon himself when he says in verse 2, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. And we'll go into depth in faithfulness in a moment. But Paul says, look, we're here to serve you. We're serving you by serving. We're serving Christ by serving you. And and all that God's looking for in us is faithfulness. And, and, And that's really encouraging, church, because there are all a lot of different talents here, a lot of different experience here, a lot of different education. There's a lot of diversity and differences here. But you know, when God's looking for us, when we serve him, he's just looking for faithfulness. And that evens it out for all of us. All of us can be faithful. Whether you have one or you have a hundred, you can be faithful. Whether you are a millionaire today or you don't have a dime in your pocket, you can be faithful. And this is one of the things that we were learning. I mean, one of the ways to measure, it's an easy way to measure in your life, faithfulness is, well, how do you do, how do you handle your money? The money that you earn and work for, the money that you went to school for, the money that God entrusts you, how do you handle your money? I mean, that's a very important issue in our lives. Like when we were raising our kids when they were younger, Marie and I were very committed to teach them how to be faithful, teach them how to be faithful with what they have. Every part of increase. I mean, they're just little guys. They don't have jobs. They're not, you know, they, they're, we're just throwing them money. They don't even do a good job with their mowing the lawn or whatever, and we'll throw them a few bucks. And, and what, what are we trying to teach them? How to handle two bucks or even a dime. They find a dime on the street. We would tell them, hey, look, the very first thing you do with that dime, you give a tithe to the Lord. That belongs to the Lord. Then we'd say, put some money in savings. You know, there's a poor little dime. We've got to cut it up in all these little pieces it's just a little dime, you know, a kid with a dime, they're a millionaire, but they know you got to give money to the Lord straight up. And then you got to put money in savings. And then Marie had them even go farther than that and put, they, she had them set up a rainy day savings for any future desires they would have or any future emergencies they would have so they could take ownership over the resources. And here's the principle that we were following. If they don't know how to be faithful with a dime, they won't know how to be faithful with a dollar. 
And if they don't know how to be faithful with a dollar, then they won't know how to be faithful with the thousands of dollars that will come into their lives as they continue to grow up and as they work and as they proceed on their career. If they don't understand that all things come from the Lord, then we have failed them. And so we were very, and you know, they were really upset because like we made every increase. We took the word increase literally, just like the Bible says. So this included all of their birthday gift cards that came through. They thought, oh, I got this gift card. I can spend it all. No, no, we'll convert that to money for you because that's the value of it. And you will honor the Lord even with your gift cards. Talk to them. They're still burned about it. That's the way it is. That's why so many, even in our church, are all upside down in finances. Because you never learn how to be faithful with the dime. And if you can't be faithful with the dime, you're not going to know how to use God's money in such a way where you take care of your needs, you take care of the needs of others, you honor him, and he gives increase. And it's never too late to step back and say, God, look at my finances. I remember Marie and I, look at, look at this. Look at the mess that we have made as new believers. And God, we just don't know what we're doing. And we need your wisdom how to lead our family. And it began with the wisdom of God, faithfulness. It's required in your life to be faithful with all. Not just, money's a great measurement, but you can, you can take that and, and you can extend it to the gifts in your life, to the talents in your life, to the people, the relationships that you have that I'll never have. Are you faithful in the community that you live in? Are you faithful at work? Like you can, you can see that faithfulness and we'll notice a little bit later that that's a requirement. That's one of the ways. You want to be useful to God? Be faithful. And here's a simple definition of faithfulness. You ready? You do what you're asked to do the way you're asked to do it. That's faithfulness. Or you could even make it a little bit stronger. You do what you're told to do the way that you're told to do it. And we'll develop that a little bit later. Come back to Acts chapter 6 now, and we'll pick up. By the time we're done, we'll have eight ingredients of the person that God uses, areas for you to look at in your life. We looked at four of them last time. Number one was God uses the person that's born again. Secondly, we learned God uses the person that's flexible. Thirdly, we learned that God uses the person that is full or controlled by the Holy Spirit. And then we learn the person that is controlled or filled with the wisdom of God. Let's look at number five. Acts chapter six, verse three. Well, let's read the text from its beginning, verse one. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a murmuring against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And it's interesting, you guys may have not noticed this yet, but the men that they chose all have Greek names all have Hellenistic names. So here they are in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and the leadership. They choose people to minister from the community of the people that were ministering that feel neglected. And God just has such great practical wisdom when it comes to solving problems. So notice, they, they choose Stephen, 
who will be the focus of the rest of chapter 6 and into chapter 7. He was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicolaus, a proselyte from Antioch. Nicholas, you know, Nicholas being picked, you got to understand, he wasn't even a Hebrew. He was a convert. And so here he is following God, a convert to Judaism, a follower of Messiah, and now he's a key person. God can use anyone. Don't write anyone off. Verse 6, whom they set before the apostles. When they prayed, they laid hands on them, and it was successful. I, I want you to understand that the decision made by the apostles was successful. The problem was resolved. How do we know? Verse 7, the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and even a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Why were many priests obedient to the faith? Because they didn't see this kind of love and care in their religious system. That's why Jesus came and rebuked them why he came and pronounced the woes upon them. They saw and experienced true, genuine love, the agape love of Christ in the body of believers. And so some of the priests got saved. So now notice with me the fifth point that we want to look at, and that is in verse 3. If you want to be useful to the Lord, you need to have a good reputation. A good reputation. When Paul was writing to the young pastor Timothy looking for elders, he said this in 1 Timothy 3, 7. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are on the outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So not only do you need to have a good reputation among believers, but you also have have to have a good reputation among those outside of the church. You could say that your life needs to verify what you say. Your life needs to be without hypocrisy. This is a significant requirement considering earlier Ananias and Sapphira represented two people that did not have a good reputation. They were proven liars and hypocrites. And in their case, they were immediately judged by God. Today, with proven liars and hypocrites... They just continue to hurt the cause of Christ. They continue to bring a black eye on the body of Christ. They say one thing. They say, I'm following Christ, but they're acting like the world, living like the world. For us, we need to be a witness as much as we need to witness. And think think about, when you think of a good reputation, just think of these characteristics. Be a person that's truthful, authentic, real, honest, reliable, that what you say is who you are. And you're not one thing in the church and another thing when you leave. And let's not fool ourselves, church. There are hypocrites among us. You know, one of the things I found over the years is that one of the greatest enemies of the church many times is the church herself. You go, what do you mean? Well, we find that there is play acting going on in the church of Jesus Christ. And I'm not naive to think that there aren't hypocrites among us. We don't know because you're putting on an act for us. We don't know. But you know. You know the life you're living. You know the kind of person you are. You, you know how you want to put on airs or one of, the, one of the words that's really popular today that you make decisions and do things for the optics, for the way things look. 
So for appearance only. But that's just hurting you and hurting the church. Because you and I, we are the church. So if we take that and we bring it down just to us, one of our, we, we can be our own worst enemies by choosing to live a life of hypocrisy. Now, I'm not speaking about, and you can listen to the studies previously, I'm not speaking about everyday life, stumbling and falling, saying dumb things, having sin in our lives. You know, I'm talking about the willful decision to live an unrepentant, fake life. That's what we're speaking of here. That does not give you a good reputation. I mean, how many times have you heard someone say, oh, I'm not going to go to church because it's filled with hypocrites. And then you get all defensive. Oh, no, 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 not my church. No, no, don't say that. So yeah, it is. And, and could it just be that you would stand in the gap for the church at large and say, please forgive us for our hypocrisies. Please forgive us. It's never been our intention to turn you off from the love and mercy of Jesus who never in a million years and all of eternity has lived a hypocritical life. Perhaps it's just required of us to ask for forgiveness and say, you know, there's hypocrites in our church too. But you know, the difference between hypocrisy from a believer and an unbeliever often is, is that, you know, it's not that we want to be hypocrites. There's a desire to be right with the Lord. There's a desire to walk in the ways of the Lord. But bad habits and the flesh and you feed the flesh, it, it, it makes for a mess of a life. And everyone around you suffers. Of course there's hypocrites in the church. Of course there's inconsistencies. But what the church is, is not about the followers of Christ. The church is about Jesus Christ. We got to get people's eyes back on him. And we don't want to become a hindrance. We can become a hindrance. I think of David. You know, David, he made some really poor decisions in his life. He committed adultery with Bathsheba and then deceitfully tried to cover it up even to the point of having her husband murdered. And remember when he finally came to the place of repentance, he learned something. He learned something very important. And that is when you and I repent of our sin, we will meet a God who's very quick to forgive today, right now. God is very quick to forgive you and me from sin that we repent of, that we have a godly sorrow of. But you know, as quick as God is to forgive people, not so much. They may not be so quick to forgive you, especially the ones you hurt, especially the ones that are close to you or the ones that your sin affected. They may not be so quick to forgive. And some of them may even use your sin is an occasion to blaspheme God. That's exactly what Nathan told David. Let me read it to you in 2 Samuel chapter 12. It said, so David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. Quick forgiveness. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. You've given an opportunity to the enemies, David, to blaspheme God. And do you know, now thousands of years later, people still use the true story of David to blaspheme God. That's how long the consequences last. He's forgiven, restored, and he becomes a great example for us to be of good reputation. That the people outside the church, inside the church, they see you as a true, authentic, real 
honest believer. Number six, number six, who's the person that God uses? The person that is faithful. And we saw a little bit of that already. Faithful. There's a couple ways of looking at this word. The first one is Stephen. Stephen is described in verse five of Acts six. The saying pleased the whole multitude and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith. So faithful could also be seen as someone that's filled with faith, taking steps of faith, putting it all on the line to obey God, stepping out, discovering what God's will is, full of faith, trusting the Lord no matter what. But it also can refer to someone that's reliable, someone that can be counted upon, somebody that does what they're told to do the way that they're told to do it. So that at the end of the day, when the master comes or whoever we're serving comes and they examine our work, they say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. You did it exactly as I asked you to. We're partnering together. Here are men that are filled with wonderful spiritual qualities and they've stepped into a very difficult situation. Very difficult. You have a brand new growing church. You have two groups of women, although they share in common the loss of their husband. They're widows. They're grieving. They also have stepped outside of the current first century social structure because following Messiah meant they lost everything. Not only are they in a different class now of people as women, unfortunately, and as widows, now they've stepped away from their family and friend and the umbrella and they've embraced Messiah where there's an equality and value upon their lives. And a group of men and women that remember in the beginning of the church, they were giving everything that they had. I'm going to sell it all and I'm going to give it to the church. I love Jesus so much. But now as we're moving forward just a few months later in the early church, people aren't selling things anymore. They are distributing things. And not only that, you have what started as giving. Now we have right here in chapter 6, now people are upset because of what they're taking or not getting. And how quick the enemy can get our eyes off of love, off of agape. How quick situations can distract us. And so now you have widows, they have nobody to lean on, no family to go to, and they have a real feeling of neglect. Add to that that they primarily speak two different languages. That's the distinction. They're all Jewish women here, but the Hebrew widows, they kept all their Jewish customs, Jewish clothing, spoke Hebrew. The Hellenistic widows, they were Jewish, but they took on the Grecian culture. They took on the way they dressed. They also spoke Greek more than they spoke Hebrew. So now there's racial undertones to it. There's friction there. We're not being cared for. They don't like us because we're Hellenists and on and on. Now there's murmuring, complaining. I mean, this is a hard situation. If you just read through Acts chapter six and you're like, oh man, a little bit of difficulty in the church. It wasn't a little bit of difficulty. It was a huge, big deal. So much so that the apostles said, look, we can't leave the word of God in prayer. We need to find seven men. That's how big the problem was. It required seven men to solve it. And not just any men, just get him and him and him and they can give the stuff. No, the apostles are teaching us that every problem practically in a church is a spiritual problem. Every problem, even though it's practical, needs to be handled spiritually. So you find the right kind of man, men that love God, Men that are filled with the Holy Spirit. Men that are filled with wisdom. 
men that have a good reputation. And we'll point them over this. Now, why do I repeat that and share that? Well, this is where faithfulness comes in. Because if you stepped into a difficulty like that, and you had a generally unfaithful life, you'd be prone to quit sometime along the way. Like, this is not what I signed up for. I just thought I was going to distribute some things and maybe pray for it. But this is bad. They're screaming and yelling and mad and upset. And I don't even understand all the words. Are, this, like, I'm done. This is not what I've been called to do. But you know, faithfulness, when you've learned on the little things how to do what you've been asked to do, the way you've been asked to do it, you can step into more difficult things. And you can step into a point where, yeah, it's going to be hard. Oh, it's going to be challenging. Serving people even on the best days, is very challenging. But on the worst days, it's impossible. It is impossible to make people happy, to make everybody satisfied. It's impossible. But the Bible says what's impossible with man is possible with God. I can do all things through Christ Jesus. So just get people's eyes back on the Lord, do what's right, and leave the results to the Lord. So here they are, faithfulness. They stood up. But also there's something about faithfulness that's hidden under the surface. And that is, when you are faithful with the little, God will give you more. That's what Jesus taught us. And I have to say, over the years, I have met men and a few women along the way that if I came and said, hey, we have this ministry just to distribute some food to widows on Saturday mornings at 5 a.m., that the response would be, and this is exaggerated, but the response would be, I am not called to serve widows. Well, really, what are you called to? I am called to your pulpit, Ed. I want your job. Really? Yes. I've been waiting for you. Here is the key that opens every door in this building. It's yours. Just understand how heavy it is. Because anyone that would take upon themselves the pastorate would be making a grave error. What do you mean you're not called to serve widows? Does that mean I'm not called to serve widows too? Because I happen to be standing behind a wooden pulpit? Of course we're called to serve widows. Of course we're called to take out the trash. Of course we're called to serve the Lord in any capacity that's necessary. Not called. You're called to greater things. I mean, I think that that's important for some of you to really understand. What greater things are there than serving God where he has you? You know, I know the Bible talks about us not despising the days of small things. But can I ask you a question? What is really small in the church? Is one person not enough for you to minister the gospel? Is five people not enough? I mean, is, is just time in your prayer closet, is that not enough? You're called to greater things. What greater things do you think you could possibly do for the Lord if you won't do the lesser things? What, what possible thing do you think you could do in the name of the Lord and be faithful and stay strong and be useful if you despise the days of small things. And I know some have great aspirations for great things. They see the, the culture that we're in right now and go, oh, I can do this and I can build a brand and I can have a channel and I can have... No, why don't you just start serving people? Just minister to people. Get into their lives. Feed the poor. Feed the hungry. Help the poor. Go minister to the homeless that are multiplying in our community. Love them in Jesus' name. Help them get clean. Step into someone's life at work. What do you mean greater things? You're living in the days of greater things. God is ready to use you now. 
And if God wants you in the pulpit, you'll be in the pulpit. And, and if he wants you to be involved in something great, he'll put you into something great, but not before you're faithful with the little things. And if you're not faithful with the little things, you will crash and burn with anything bigger than that. You know, some guys, they just, I'm going to be a church planter, going to be a mega church pastor. I'm going to go do great things, but they're not willing to teach kids. They're not willing to take out the trash. They're not willing, and you name, I meet people that, I'm going to be a great missionary and follow in the days of missionaries gone by. I'm going to go across the world and spread the gospel. But you're not even willing to go across the street and spread the gospel. How do you think it's going to change when you move around the world? In a different culture, with a different language. Go across the street, church. Be the church. I have my own testimony on this. As a new believer, I had great aspirations. God had to teach me and humble me. I remember stepping out and taking classes at, at our church. And it was a, similar to our school ministry here. And we were taking classes. And part of the class was I needed to do service hours in the church. So they gave me a sheet of paper and said, go do something. And then have somebody sign and say you did it. I'm like, okay. I was looking at my schedule and work and everything at the time. And the only thing that could really fit was children's ministry. And I love kids, and I'm thinking, this is going to be great. As soon as the pastor finds out that I'm in this school, he's going to give me the biggest class that he possibly has so I can test all my Greek and Hebrew words that I'm learning on these poor, unsuspecting kids. And so I did my ministry application, and I took it to Pastor Rudy. And, and back then, our church on a Wednesday night is when I was serving. We had about 300, 350 kids come out on a Wednesday night, and that's just up through sixth grade. So junior high and high school were different ministries altogether. So just through uh, the elementary years in the nursery, we had three, 350 kids. And I was thinking, maybe this big class. And Pastor Rudy looked at me with a look that I didn't know then, but I know very well now. It was the kind of look that says, you know, this guy has no idea what he's in for. And so he was very gracious to me. Oh, I see you're in the school. That's great. You're coming here to serve. I have needs. We had that conversation. He says, we have a need. We have a need every week. We have a need in the nursery. In the nursery. We had just had our second child. So we got a baby at the house screaming. And I'm coming to church. Not really. My inside voice was, the nursery? My outside voice says, yes, sir. I'll go right over there. And I go over there, begin to minister and that's exactly what God had for me. God wanted me in the nursery. He wanted Pastor Rudy to tell me what to do and tell me how to do it. And so I went to the nursery and I submitted myself to the leadership of the nursery. And for the next many, many, many months, I held babies. Let me just say, babies aren't so interested in the Greek and the Hebrew. I tried. <laughs> they got their own little language speaking in tongues in there too. And but I'll tell you what, what babies are interested in, and they can tell the difference. They, they can tell if someone loves them or not. They can tell if someone cares for them just by the way they're held, by the way they're embraced, by the way they're spoken to, by the way they're looked at. And I learned that, hey, are babies any less significant than adults? Of course not. Babies are little humans in the development stage. I also learned that babies are connected to parents. <laughs> And parents can tell if you took care of their kids as well. They can tell if you cared for them. 
They can tell how, you know, if they're handed back like this or it's like, no, you can just leave them with me for the rest of the night. And you're like, yes, date night, honey. I also learned that babies had grandparents. I learned that some of those babies didn't have parents at all. I learned some of those babies had, were single parents, made some mistakes in their life. Some of those babies had divorced parents. It's amazing what can happen when you are faithful with the little. And I didn't know. I thought I'd spend the rest of my life in the nursery, quite frankly. But over time, I found that God would move me from one room to another. You know, I ended up teaching in every single classroom of our children's ministry before eventually becoming the overseer of the children's ministry, before eventually moving on to teaching a Bible study and moving on in different areas of ministry that have led the foundation of this church. You can thank Pastor Rudy and Carrie, who was my overseer. You can thank those two people because they were the genesis of my spiritual leadership development right there with the babies. Listen, if you can't be faithful with the little things, you won't be faithful with bigger things. And neither will you be given bigger things. And once you are given bigger things, whatever that might mean to you, you don't abandon the little things. You know, you think, is, is one person too little for you? Well, let me tell you something. When you serve one person, you are everything to them. You're not just a little part. Your ministry, the word you're sharing, the prayers you're giving, the hospital visit, the, the time you show up at a memorial, whatever, you are everything to them. That is no small thing. That's why these guys needed to be faithful. Because there would be the temptation to quit, temptation to, oh, you know, when am I going to outgrow the widows? No, you never outgrow widows. There'll always be a part of your life. That heart of compassion, that desire to love. Number seven, number seven, you want to be a person that God uses? Be available. Be available. It's one thing to say you want to serve. It's another thing to be available and to make sure that you have the right priorities and you seek God first and you're available. And let me say at this point, does this apply to serving in this church in particular? Absolutely. I am absolutely teaching you and equipping you so you can step up and serve in this church, but not exclusively. Absolutely, yes. Exclusively, no. Because when you step up to serve in your local church, you are being trained to serve when you leave your local church. That's where you spend most of your life. Not here on the property. You spend most of your life outside of the property. So here God has provided an environment for you to serve and for you to experiment and for you to learn submission and lessons that you wouldn't learn anywhere else on people that are already saved. And you get to work things out together. You get to grow together. But you have to be available. Remember in Isaiah chapter 6, in verse 8, Isaiah is there at the throne room and, and the voice of the Lord says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? What was his answer? Here I am, send me. You want to be available? Your answer has to be here I am. And we get an email every Friday, you get announcements every weekend, here I am. This is God's call upon my life. I want to step in and let God use me. I want to be used. You got to answer here I am. Because you know, we're not the type of church that will chase people down. We're not the type of church that will beg you to serve. If we don't have the right servants or any, we just won't do it. Yeah, but Ed, what will happen? Every other church in town has that ministry. Well, we don't have the servants for it, so we're not going to compromise. I guess we'll just study the Bible and sing together. Is that not enough? Well, I don't know. 
Maybe we need to go over, you know, we're just, we're not going to beg you, but we're going to pray for you. We're going to stir up love and good works in your life. We we might exhort you a little bit along the way. We might help you, but we're not going to beg you. You serve the Lord, don't serve the Lord. It's between you and him. And when we have the, the people that God entrusts to us and we get to disciple them and train them and prepare them, man, that's always fun. But if we have to wait, then we will wait. We'll wait for the Lord to do what he wants to do. Why? Because we've already learned this is his church. We're just responding to what God wants to do in his church. We're not driving this thing. We're not directing this thing. We're responding to God who is the initiator, just like you. You would be responding to God who is the initiator. So make sure that you respond, here I am. And then number eight, as we close and head into communion, you want to be used by God. It's important that you're teachable teachable. This is very important to be teachable. As we will see in life of Stephen, he, he is used in such a traumatic way, in such a dramatic way all throughout until his first martyr, before he becomes the first martyr dying for his faith. And he was teachable. In order to be usable, you need to be teachable. We need to learn from Jesus. He said, He said, come to me and learn of me. And we have to be teachable. Here's the problem. We're full-grown adults. And full-grown adults think that they don't need to learn anything. Some of you might even be someone that considers, I don't need to learn. I'm not going to learn anything because I know it all. Heard that phrase? I know it all. You're the only one that thinks you know it all. You know that, right? Everyone around you knows you don't know it all. But there's this pride in us. Nobody can teach us anything. Nobody can tell us anything. Listen, I've been ministering in this community now 22 years, and never more in my life have I realized I need a fresh word from the Lord. I have so much to learn in serving in this community in this day. Today is not yesterday. Today is not even pre two years ago. And whatever God has for us, I want to be teachable. And I want you to be teachable. You have to be ready. So when you think of teachable, I want you to be ready for this. As you step in to serve God, you have to expect to be corrected. And that pricks pride, doesn't it? Correction. No, don't do it this way. It's supposed to be done that way. Or no, don't do it that way. It's supposed to be done this way. And your response to correction will reveal a lot about yourself. It will reveal a lot about where your heart is with the Lord. Correction is a big part of ministry. Correction, I I, I noticed this recently, and I want to share it with you. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Most often we'll come to this section of scripture and, and it will prove to us and teach us that the Bible is divinely inspired. And it is. Wholly inspired of God. But there's something else we learn here. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. That's super instructive for us. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. So anytime you read the Bible, anytime you're in the Bible, it's profitable for you. Four things. Four things. First for doctrine, then for reproof, then for correction, 
And finally, for instruction in righteousness. So for the four things mentioned here, the Bible is profitable for three layers of correction in your life. I mean, every time you read the Bible, it's correcting something. Sometimes it's a soft correction. That's the word correction. Sometimes it's a hard correction. That's rebuke. Other times it's just a general correction. Just keep moving forward. This is the right way to go. No, not this way. No, not that way. Just this way. And then I think there could be a, so 75% of your time in the word is correcting you. <laughs> and you go, that's why I don't read it anymore. I know. Because it's hard to say, man, because you, you could get to the place where you make it all about you. And you go, oh, am I that bad? Don't make it all about you. Make it all about God and he will help you be less bad. No, it's not all about you. And no, you're probably not as bad as you think you are. But there are probably areas that you're overlooking. And the Lord says, no, I want you to go in the right direction. And I think you can make a strong case for doctrine. The Bible being profitable for doctrine is also corrective. Because if you come to the Bible with wrong beliefs and the Bible gives you right beliefs, you've got to change them. So the Bible is a transformative work. So will ministry. Ministry will be transformative, but not if you refuse correction and refuse to be teachable. Even as adults, where we think we should know more than we do or be farther along, yes. But there's always something new to learn. The Bible is very clear. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge Him in all your ways. He'll direct your paths. We just have to fight leaning on our own understanding. So I believe God is raising up a new generation of servants in our church. I don't mean that necessarily age-wise, but a whole new group. A whole new group for a whole new season in the life of this church. And you know, even though we've studied these eight principles, if you want them repeated, you're taking notes. Number one was born again. Number two is flexible. Number three was filled with the Holy Spirit. Fourth was full of wisdom. Number five was a good reputation. Number six was faithful. Number seven, available. Number eight, teachable. These are great principles, but I'm telling you, church, we need more than principles. We need to be men and women with a depth of character. We need the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We need to live a surrendered life. We need to be learned to be faithful with what God's given us. We need to live a life that is abandoned to the purposes of God and not our own little agendas. These seven men were humble servants who stepped into a very difficult situation that could have hindered the progress of the church. And they were yielded to the Holy Spirit and they were used to solve this problem. Spiritual leadership always has the end goal of solving problems. And the way that problems are solved is through servanthood. We aren't here to make problems worse, even though it might feel that way sometimes when you have to face the reality of your situation. We're not here to make things more complicated. The spiritual leadership of any church should be there to serve you, not to be a celebrity, and to help you solve your problems of the difficulties that you're facing. You know, Deal Moody was a guy used greatly of the Lord. And he was convinced in his life that total surrender to God was the key to ministry. He actually got that from another guy, a British evangelist. His name was Henry Varley. And he said this, and I'm sure you've heard it, but if not for the very first time, Henry said this, and I quote, the world is yet to see what God will do with 
and for and through and in and by the man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. Let me read that to you again a little bit slower. The world has yet to see what God will do with and for and through and in and by the man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. And it was in that moment D.L. Moody said, God, make me that man. And I invite you to make the same request of God. Make me that woman. Make me that man to be more usable in these last days. So Father, as we turn our hearts toward communion, as we as we find ourselves in a place of submission, encouraged, challenged, and open to a fresh work of your spirit, we remember your body and your blood this Lord's day. We come to you out of obedience. It might be hard for some to hear the thing that I said, Lord, that there's hypocrites here. Because it just hit their heart so hard. But I pray you draw them out of that life of hypocrisy. They can just be who they are. That's the first. Just be honest with us. Just, just live a life of openness. And let, let you, God, deal with the issues in their life. And I pray, God, that you would purify your church and raise up an army of men and women that would respond, here I am. And that we would step into people's lives one at a time, allowing you to use us in greater ways. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.